Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Um, you may notice I look nothing like the posters that we have up of Don Whitley. Um, missing some hair and beard and stuff like that. Uh, due to the weather, um, he is down in the south where he's from, and his flight was canceled. And so we have the great opportunity to reschedule that, for God willing, a time hopefully before um, the end of March is what we're gearing for. So um, those of you who may have come for that, we'll keep you posted as to when we get that scheduled. But my name is Jeremy, and I have the privilege of serving as a senior pastor here. And yesterday, I had the privilege of finishing my sermon. So, um, so thank you for joining me today. I appreciate that. Um, I, we were actually, we were sitting around the, the kitchen table yesterday morning after we found out that, that Mr. Whitley was not going to be here. And um, my, my son, Ephraim, he, he's like, Dad, I'll preach. He, he, he offers to preach. And I said, oh, do you, I know, isn't that great? I, I said, do you, do you know what you're getting yourself into? And he, he, he goes, yeah. And I said, you know, in, this is the way things work in my house. Um, I, I said, I dropped a, a Greek word on him, of course, you know. And I said, you know, the word preach comes from the Greek word euangelizo. You don't have to remember that later. But it, but it means to share something about the euangelion, which is the good news of Jesus. And he goes, Dad, I've got good news. Tom Brady's not going to be in the Super Bowl. <laughs> and I thought, yes, that is good news <laughs> of a different sort that we will do. So uh, we, we won't talk about Tom Brady this morning. He did say I could share that story, though. And so I thought I'd share that with you because it touched my heart. But we are going to be in James chapter one, so grab your Bibles, please. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There are Bibles at the back of the auditorium on those tables. If you need one, please get up and get one. Uh, it's just fantastic to have your own copy of the scripture in front of you. Uh, bring it every week. It's, a, it's an important thing uh, in our life and in the life of this church. So, um, last week, just for a brief recap, we, we started talking about what does it mean that James calls himself servant of God and of the Lord Jesus. And kind of where we landed that plane was talking about um, being a servant has to do with being all about what your master cares about. And Jesus, in John chapter 15, we studied last week, he says, abide in me, remain in me, and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. He says, actually, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we talked about what does it mean to abide? What does it mean to remain? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in this world? And it's, and it's about being about the things that God wants us to be about. And James is an incredibly practical book. It it's, talks about the tongue, it talks about money, it talks about a whole host of issues. And it says, don't do this, do this. But, but when we approach James, we don't want to approach James with a, I must do this, like kind of like a grouchy attitude. We, we want to approach it as James, I think, intended it, being servants of God by people who abide, who remain, who dwell with Christ, who out of our love for God and our relationship with Jesus want to live this out. And the only way we can live this out, and Jesus says this, he says the only way you can have any lasting spiritual fruit is if you remain in me. 
And so I hope as you've looked back and if you take a moment now and you just kind of think back upon your last week, I hope you had moments where you learned and you practiced abiding in Jesus. Being in prayer, being in his word, being encouraged, encouraging others in the things of God. And so that's what we talked about last week. And, um, you know, I guess it all comes down to this, is Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. He does. And I know for myself, um, sometimes the biggest detriment to having and cultivating a personal relationship with Jesus is that I just get so busy that I stop thinking about him. And maybe that's true for you. But um, if it is, today is a new day. Today is a new day to learn what it means to abide in Christ and allow Christ to abide in and through you. And so, if you would stand with me, we're going to launch into the next section of James's letter. We're going to read the first four verses, all right? We're going to break down what I was going to do in one whole fell swoop. Next week, we're going to break down into two, which is a good thing. James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops endurance or perseverance. Endurance or perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Pray with me, please. Father, these are difficult words for some of us to pray, maybe for all of us to pray. Count it all joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. God, we don't naturally enjoy trials. But God, I thank you that you use things, even like trials, to meet us, to strengthen us, to teach us, to remind us that you are here. And Father, in our study this morning, many of us find ourselves in trials this morning. Teach us what it means to count them as joy for the sake of your name. We pray in the name of Jesus. Together, everyone said, amen. Please be seated. So, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 18 is often considered a thematic unity, which is why I was going to tackle it all in one fell swoop next week. Uh, We're going to talk about the first couple verses, and then we're going to talk about a lot of the implications of those verses, which come in verses 5 and following. Um, This morning, um, we're beginning with, consider it all, or pure, or great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. And one of the things about James's letter is that percentage-wise, it has more imperative commands in this book than any other book in the Bible, per- percentage-wise. And there's, there's two right here in this very first paragraph, the way mine breaks it up. Verse two, the first imperative is, consider it a great joy. He's writing to his, his hearers, and he's saying, do it. This is something that you must do. The second one comes in verse 4. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But, but these imperatives come around, and he says, I want you to consider the trial you're experiencing as joy, all joy, pure joy, which is something that is kind of bizarre. 
The word joy here comes from a Greek word that actually means grace. And it's related to the word that he says at the end of verse 1. Greetings. When he says greetings, it's a word for grace. And he's essentially saying grace to you. And then consider it a grace. Consider it a gift is the other way you can translate the word kara, which is grace. And, but he says consider it joy. Also another good translation. Consider it great joy whenever you experience various trials. Trials are, um, in James's perspective, here's what trials are not. Trials are not an inconvenience. They're not an unfortunate opportunity, nor are they something to avoid. Now, for many of us, we go, what? I'm trying to get around all the trials in my life. Many of us build our lives saying, how can I mitigate what might happen? And James says, you are going to experience various trials. Don't try to get around them. If they're there, consider them a joyful part of God's presence and God's work in your life. Whenever you experience various trials. Now, various trials seems to indicate that trials come in many shapes and sizes. Meaning, my trial today or this week may not be the same as your trial. And that's okay. We don't all have to have the same trial for us to like share and commiserate together. We all experience trial, and they're trials of various kinds. You know, for Jay, whom we just prayed for, he's experiencing one kind of trial that's different than what I'm going to experience. But regardless of the trial, James says, consider it pure joy when you experience these things, knowing that the testing of your faith develops endurance or perseverance. So trials are not an inconvenience, not an unfortunate opportunity or something to avoid, they're, but, but neither do you have to seek them out. Uh, they're not to be rebuffed, but they are to be an opportunity to rejoice. Now, why would we rejoice in trials? Here's one of the reasons. is because trials bring blessing from God, blessing from God, both in this world and in the next. See, the the follower of Christ has an eternal perspective, which means we live in the moment. We have to live in the moment. We experience things here. But it means that this moment is not all that we have. Jesus, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, he says this. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, Rejoice. Similar words. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for this is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James seems to echo the words of his Lord, Master, and his older brother uh, because most scholars believe that James is a a half-brother of Jesus. We're talking about the main James in the Jerusalem church. He seems to echo Jesus' words when he says, Rejoice. Find it pure joy whenever you experience trials. Blessing is not found in the trial, though. Okay? D- don't, don't misunderstand me. Trials are not always fun. The blessing is not in the trial itself. The blessing is in the deepened relationship with Christ that comes as you lean into him in the midst of a trial. Trial. Um, the word trial here, here's a Greek word for you, is the word periosmos. Can you say that? 
periosmos. Oh, your Greek is fantastic. A periosmos, if you want to spell that, you could spell it P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-S. Sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint because this got all finalized yesterday. Um, uh, periosmos. And it, there's two ways that this word can be used. And in fact, it's used in two different ways in chapter one in the book of James. One way it's used is in verse two. Um, when you ever experience these various trials, consider them joy. Uh, and, and the context for this, or the definition for this, you might, you might say, is an attempt to learn the nature or the character of something. Okay? Trial in verse 2 is the attempt to learn the nature or the character of something. That's the purpose or, or the background to trial. The other way that the word periosmos, say it again, periosmos, very good. The other way it's used, if you just look briefly down, we'll talk about it next week, is in verse 13. It says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. All right? The, the way that the word is used here in that verse, it could be defined as an attempt to make one do something wrong, a temptation, or an enticement to sin. Okay, two very different things. One tests the nature or character. The other one is a temptation to have someone do something that would be against God. And James uses both words in this, and the reason you can tell which way it's being used is by context, all right? The context of the first is, consider great joy, and the context of verse 13 is, don't say that God is tempting you. He doesn't tempt anyone to sin, and he cannot be tempted by evil. So just so you know, there's two ways that word can be used um, within the text, and context gives you that. Trials come in many shapes and sizes. James, James, I said, uses various trials because we all experience trials of many kinds. Um, and a trial, you might be able to define as this. Um, a trial is any circumstance that tests one's faith, that tests one's faith, that, that, that tests whether you're going to trust God in that moment or whether you're going to try to go on your own. All right? A trial is, is a circumstance, any circumstance. It can be big, it can be small, that tests one's faith. I, I wrote down faith muscle in my, in my notes. Faith muscle. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, things or examples like this, uh, examples of this occur within this first chapter. We'll talk about them next week some, but financial pressures, poverty, loss of job, oppression, even wealth, these can all be trials that come in our life that leave us with a question, how am I going to respond to this? Am I going to trust God in the midst of this, or am I going to trust myself, or am I going to trust something else rather than God? And trials provide the opportunity to learn the nature or character of something. Namely, they, they, they give us the opportunity to learn the nature and the character of, am I trusting God in this? They, they expose perhaps what's more deeply imprinted upon our hearts in our, our own um, walk with the Lord. And they give us the opportunity also to deepen and to grow. Uh, trials are, are, are unique in that. And to help you understand that, I brought some weights in. In full confession, I had to dig them out yesterday. Um, they were under many, many things, which is only to say, um, they were covered by coffee beans, actually. <laughs> um, uh, which is only to say, I have not been lifting 
any time recently. Um, weights are a great way to build muscle. Now, there's other ways to do it, and um, weights can be a very important component, though, to getting healthy. One of the reasons is because they help build strength. Now, you might have smaller weights, you might have bigger weights, uh, but when you sit down and you're going to work out, you're going to come, and this isn't like a P90X workout or anything like that, but, but when you come to work out, you come to test a muscle. You come to strengthen a muscle. And what happens, you know, if, if you're doing a lift like that, or if you're doing a lift like this, or if you're doing a different lift, you know, like you're doing like some of these or something like that, you're stretching a muscle. And oftentimes what happens is the first day you feel maybe tired, the second day you feel sore, and by the third day, if it's your first day, especially like doing bench press, which works this area right here, your chest area, if you hit someone right here, it hurts really bad. Uh, day three, when you go to lift that muscle group again, can be one of the most painful days. Here's what happens though. As you lift weights, part of your muscle begins to break down. But as it breaks down, your body begins to heal it. And when you come back, and say you're lifting weights for a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, five months, six months, a year, if you track your progress from, you know, say now to next December, and you lift consistently and you lift safely, you can find that 12 months from now, you're going to lift a whole lot more. You're going to be able to trust your muscles that they're going to do what you think they're going to do. You're going to be able to add bigger weights to these barbells in order to strengthen and strengthen and strengthen and to grow that muscle. And it's a lot like that with trials. When trials come in our life, they, 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 they exercise what it means to trust in God, which means sometimes there's some breakdown there. But over the course of time, Trials only serve to build us and make us stronger. Not stronger physically, stronger in God, you have said this, God, I'm going to trust. That does not mean that we don't have difficult days, but trials exhibited over time, over time, build those repetitions that make you go, yeah, God, God carries me, God is sufficient for me. Several months back, I was, I was sitting with Jay, actually, in my office. And I think Jay would probably be the first one to tell you that he, he doesn't necessarily want to have to go and un, undergo a heart transplant today. But his walk with the Lord, he would also tell you, is something that has grown stronger and stronger and stronger in the midst of that trial. In a way, in a way that it could not have been built, perhaps any other way. Note the progression of the text here. We have trials that test your faith, and the results of the testing of your faith is that there's endurance that is produced. Now, the idea behind testing of faith is to test for authenticity. Uh, William Barclay, in his commentary, he says this. He's, he says the word there for testing of faith, it's the word for sterling coinage, for money which is genuine and absolutely pure. The aim of testing is to pur purge us, he says, of all impurity. In other words, as we undergo tests, we, we, we begin to understand the things that are not genuine in our life. 
And those things, as we become aware of them by God's grace, we, we are then able to make godly decisions and godly actions that say, that is not true. I'm not going to believe that. This is a lie and it has hurt. I'm not going to do that. And as you go and, and your faith is tested, you, you, you're purified or made holy in a way that is uniquely uh, in the hands of God. Now, in the end, testing produces within us endurance, the passage says. Whenever you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. The idea behind uh, endurance here, or, or, or you might ask the question, how, how do trials produce endurance? Well, trials provide the context for us to trust God in real time. It's easy to say, I believe in God. Similarly, it is easy to say, I can lift these weights. But only by actually doing it and living it out do I find out what I'm actually capable of. If that makes sense. Um, Many of you have experienced this. Many of you have experienced this idea of endurance. Um, You may have had a bill one time that you could not pay, and yet as you sought the Lord and you said, God, I have no idea where we're going to get this from. God supplied your need. You may think maybe it's just a coincidence. It's not. God supplied your need. You may have a health issue and don't have answers, but but in the midst of that, God meets you there with his peace. He walks along with you. Maybe he brings someone into your hospital room or into, um, into your life to encourage you in a way that you needed. Some of you may have ex- experienced uh, working with difficult people, whether it's at school or whether it's at work. And, and some days it's really hard to go in there and talk to that boss or go in there and talk to that person who's in the cubicle next to you. And yet, Each day as you go and you seek the Lord, God gives you grace to be kind when it's really one of the last things maybe that you in and of yourself want and desire to do. Produces endurance. And it says endurance must bring about its complete work. And its complete work is brought about and it results in maturity. Now, a mature follower of Jesus is one who bears fruit. It's, it's one who abides with Christ. It's one who, who's, whose life you look at and you go, they're a follower of Jesus. I can just tell by the way they live. In Luke 8, um, Jesus is telling what is called the parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, he says there's a seed that is scattered. And that's, that seed that's scattered is the word of God. And then he lists four different environments in which that seed falls. The first environment is a path. The second is a rock. The third are thorns, or a ground with thorns around it. And then the last one is good ground. And as he's doing this, he, he's, he's telling the story, teaching his disciples. He talks a little bit about what it means that he's speaking in parables that certain people can see and other people have it blinded from them. But then he explains this parable to his disciples. And he says, the seed, the word of God, falls in four different categories. The first one, the path, um, it is not a great place that you would scatter seed. 
All right? It's a seed, Jesus says, where the devil comes and he steals away the seed of the word. There's no chance for the seed to take up root and to bear into a, a plant that would actually yield some sort of fruit. All right? It just, it's not where you can sow um, seed and have a, a positive yield. Um, the second is a rock. And this could be a rock or it could be a bedrock. There, there, there might be dirt around this rock. But what happens is the seed goes down and it penetrates a little bit of dirt, but before you know it, it hits rock. And when it hits rock, it has no way else to grow because there's no more nourishment. There's no more dirt for it to become the, the wheat or the oats or whatever it is that you're growing. It has no, no significant um, soil in which to flourish in the way that God wants it to flourish. Then there's a seed in the thorns, and Jesus says this is representing a, a walk of life, a spiritual walk that is choked out by things in this world. Much like if, if you have seed um, of, of a plant, but you also have weeds in there, pretty soon the weeds often tend to overgrow the actual thing you want to harvest. And he's like that. Uh, he's, he said it's like that. There's riches, there's pleasures, there's distractions, and these things overcome the effectiveness of God's word in your life and in mine. Finally, he says, then there's the seed that is sown on the good ground. Now, good ground is what you want to sow seed into. Good ground displays a life that holds fast to the word of God. it's, It's a life that receives it and allows God's word to dwell richly and deeply so that there's maturity, there's spiritual growth, and then there's a harvest of fruit that comes by the Spirit. One scholar says this about planting seed in the ancient time. He says, in the ancient world, the key to a successful harvest was the soil in which the seed fell. If you don't have good soil, you're not going to have a good crop. Bad soil, bad crop. On the contrary, good soil which means it's free from thorns, it's free from rocks, it's been prepared well, and it's ready to receive the seed, that will yield a plentiful harvest. And Jesus says this in Luke 8, 15, he says, but the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who having heard the word with an honest and good heart, they hold on to it, and by enduring, same word is used in James, and by enduring, they bear fruit. One of the results of enduring amidst trials is that when you endure and you allow the word of Christ and you allow the teaching of God to penetrate your life in that moment and in that trial, fruit begins to come. Now, it may take some time. There there may be some growing that needs to happen, but little by little by little, God will work in his word, God will work in your life, and you and I will yield fruit for God's glory. Endurance, endurance takes time, and it takes attention to the soil. It requires dealing with sticks and stones and weeds that threaten the health of the plant. When uh, I was growing up, uh, I was probably about nine or ten years old. We had just moved to a, uh, a new house. My, my parents had built a house, and they had six acres of land. And um, part of it was pond, part of it was house, and the rest of it, um, we decided to grass seed. Grass seed. How many of you have ever seeded a lawn? A couple of you. How many of you have ever seeded more than three acres of grass? 
bless your heart, um, we had three to four acres of grass that we seeded. And my grandpa helped us do it, and he was an old uh, farm guy. He, he knew how to, you know, he used to f- sell farm machinery, and he, he knew all about that kind of stuff. So he, he plowed the fields with the tractor, and then he dissed the fields with the tractor. And then we all got together, and we grabbed these wonderful things called rakes. And we spent hours upon hours upon hours, at least it felt like at 9 and 10 years old, um, raking this dirt so that it would lay right. And you know, if you plow or if you dig up in your garden, you'll find old roots, you'll find stones, you'll find sticks, and those don't really help you grow grass. So we'd use these rakes and we'd pull them, and we'd get all the rocks out and all the rocks out. And the, you know, this is, this is extra, but um, we ended up having a couple of agricultural, or uh, having a couple of issues with septic and stuff like that. And so there was a certain section that we had to do three times over the course of three years, doing it over and over and over again. And every time you come back to it, there's more rocks and there's more stones. But if you want grass to grow thick and green and soft, You don't want there to be patches. You have to do it right. In order for God's word to grow in your life and in mine, we have to be mindful of the soil on which it falls. There's a man in the Bible, his name is Noah. And Noah is described as a person whose character was upright. It says Noah walked with God. Noah lived amongst a very, very difficult generation, uh, a very wicked generation. You know, we have the flood in there, and the reason the flood came is because all man's thoughts were only of evil all the time. And yet, in the midst of a godless generation, here's Noah, who when God says, hey, I want you to build an ark, I'm going to save you, He goes, okay, (laughs) I'll build this really big boat. And year upon year upon year, he goes with, with this plan that God had given him to build this thing. But imagine what it was like for Noah. You have the entire culture around you pursuing their own pleasure. And yet Noah says, God, I want to do what you want. You say that, God, I'll do that. I know this may be a trial I'm going through. I know I've just been mocked and ridiculed by that neighbor over there. I know they've come from a couple miles just to see this monstrosity that I'm building. God, I'm going to trust that it's going to rain. You said it would rain. I'm going to trust it's going to rain. Noah had a heart and had, had soil in his life, if you will, that said, God, I want to do your will. And that's the heart of a person. That's the heart that James wants to communicate to someone who is undergoing a trial. James is writing to people, Jewish people predominantly, who, um, who've experienced several trials in their life, uh, both as being a part of the Jewish nation, but also being persecuted for their faith in the Messiah Jesus. I, I believe he's writing primarily to people who'd been kicked out of Jerusalem for their faith in the Messiah people who were on the run because of their life, people who were persecuted to the point that they fled. Acts tells us that that happens in Acts chapter 8. I believe it is. 
And he's writing to people and he's saying, you know, when you experience trials, count it all joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance, perseverance must finish its work in you, he says, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea behind mature and complete here is having a character that's upright, seeking to live a righteous lifestyle and following God's word no matter the cost. Now, one of the things I think that those original hearers may have asked, I don't know if they did, but perhaps they asked, they may have said, God, why are you doing this? Why must we flee? Why must we, why must we experience trial? And if we're honest, we've all probably thought that same thing too. Undeserved suffering is something with which many of us struggle, and honestly, many times we do not know the why behind the suffering. And it may not even be suffering, um, it, it may be suffering of a whole different nature. But even though we don't know why we have suffering in our lives, beyond the fact that we live in a fallen world and we experience the frailness of humanity, we can know and do know that God's purposes will ultimately prevail because uh, our, our hope is not just in this moment, our hope is in here and in the world to come. We know that God sovereignly uses suffering for our good, for our maturity, and so that fruit might result in our lives, but that fruit is, is not a bigger house and it's not a better bank account. That fruit is righteousness and peace and joy. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It, it's, it's walking more closely with God today than we did yesterday, because in suffering we experience the richness of God's grace. In suffering, God is not distant, but in suffering and in trial, God is with us. Romans 5 talks about endurance. And, and Paul says this, he says, we have also obtained access through faith by, through, sorry, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope, Paul says, will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so as you walk through a dark time, as you walk through a hopeless time, God is with you. Hope is one of the markers of the Christian. When trials are faced, they may be difficult, but they are not insurmountable because our hope is both here and it is there. It's in one who has conquered the grave. It's in one who has given us life in his name. And because of that, he is ready. God is ready to give perfect peace and joy in the midst of the most difficult of trials. Joy is really a, a practice, but it's also a result of serving the Lord even when circumstances are grim. It's not without... Um, wonder that, that even as Paul writes something like that from Romans, we think of Paul's experience in Philippians, or in Philippi, where he's imprisoned. 
And where, what do we find him doing? There, we find in the book of Acts, we find in the book of Philippians, we find him rejoicing. Oftentimes we find him singing. Uh, in jail one time, they were singing and singing and singing and singing. It must have been the most weird thing for the person who doesn't know the Lord. But yet in the midst of that trial, he finds perfect peace in the middle of the storm. A servant of God, James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, but a servant of God cares about one thing and one thing only. Their ultimate goal in life and their aim is to please God, period. It's to please God, period, and to trust that God will meet whatever needs they had. And so when we talk about trials, maybe you could put it this way. God uses trials in our life not to break us, but to make us stronger. He uses them to remind us of his perfect provision in the midst of life, because life is filled with trial. Let me ask you a question, a couple questions perhaps. Um, How do you view trials? How do you view, view trials? If you were to look at trials that you have in your life right now, Get really specific, because you know what they are. How do you view them? How do you respond to them? Is maybe another question you could ask. Here's a trial you have in your life. How do I typically respond to that? Let me ask you this. How do you think your life and my life would change if we viewed trials as a way to know God better, to trust him more fully, and as a, and as a place where our human desires are replaced by God's perfect desires and God's perfect grace in our spiritual life. What is the status of your soil? One of my pastor friends, he, he, he put it this way, he said, how's your dirt? When you hear the word of God, do you hear it and are you ready by God's grace to learn to apply it to that thing going on in your life? because that's exactly where God wants you to use his word. Not just in a, you know, pie in the sky, theological framework. He wants you to say, in the midst of this, God says this, therefore I will do that by his grace. Would you bow your heads with me? I want you to just think for a moment again, what is a trial that you are currently experiencing in your life? Then I invite you to pray a prayer like this. God, you know the trial that I am experiencing right now. You see it, and God, you are with me in the midst of it. God, help me to know how I should respond. God, help me to know what I should say, what I should think, what I should do in the midst of this very difficult moment that is testing my trust in you. God, help me not to trust in my own ideas. In the words of the scripture, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not upon your own understanding. 
but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. God, we pray that you would direct our paths this day as we, as we face trials and temptations, we face um, battles with our own selfish desires. God, we, we know you don't tempt us to sin, but we know that you allow trials in our life to make us stronger. Help us to consider those trials joy. Help us in the midst of those things to say, God, you are good. God, I sing your, your, your praise. God, I bless your name even in the midst of this. And God, most of all, help us to know you more fully in the midst of those trials. May you keep our hearts from bitterness and from anger. God, may you guard our hearts from not having an eternal perspective. God, we want an eternal perspective upon our lives. Meet us where we are with your grace. We pray in the name of Jesus, the one who has saved us, the one who has given us life and hope, the one who experienced temptation in all ways, and yet God, he remained faithful to you and to your word. God, we prayed in his name, the one who understands us, who sympathizes with our weakness, the one God who intercedes for us. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.